how can we seriously expect people to be honest, good citizens without knowing their own history? Of course, they'll be honest and good. But what is your stake in society? Mm. What is your stake if you don't know anything about it? For most kids, the history of Canada that they get is when they're 12 years old in grade seven. That is appalling. That is appalling. And I don't buy the argument that social studies is history. History is a different kind of thinking. History Mm -hmm. is about transporting yourself into a different period, understanding the way people thought, criticizing, of course, understanding where society has evolved. How has it evolved? It's not about trashing the past, trashing our grandfathers, our great-grandfathers, our great-grandmothers. It's not about that. We need to know our history. This is unacceptable for me that we have so little, so little grounding in our history. Welcome to Freedom Feature. I'm your host, Barry Bussey. With me today, I have as our special guest, Professor Patrice Dutil in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. So, Professor Dutil, welcome to our program. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I tell you, I was very impressed with an article and a book that you've written, but I just want you to just share with our listeners your own background and what concerns you most in the issues of public policy. I am a professor of politics and public administration, as you said, at Ryerson University. I should say it's called Toronto Metropolitan University now, since we've had a name change. And it's going to to take a while to get used to that. I've been teaching here since uh, 2006. Before that, I worked in government, in uh, government agencies, and in the nonprofit sector for almost 20 years. So that brings a certain perspective to the uh, to mm-hmm. the work I do. Uh, in terms of the policy issues, I'm very interested in constitutional issues. I'm very interested in heritage issues, arts, arts and culture. I'm, I've written a bit on innovation. I'm really uh, curious about creativity, innovation. So I write about that. And I also write a lot about leadership, political leadership and administrative leadership. In other words, the the work of the senior public servants. A lot of my writing is about that. Mm-hmm. So it's all those things. It's a, it's a hodgepodge. I admit I have wide ranging interests and um, <laughs> uh, sometimes it gives me, uh, puts me in trouble, but mostly, <laughs> mostly I'm happy. So I'm I'm okay. <laughs> right on. Well, that's awesome. Well, you know, one of the things I, I've appreciated about your writing is I've just been really introduced to you as a result of uh, going through the uh, Dorchester Review article that you wrote on the affair of Dundas in Toronto falling for a hoax, but also your other book, Prime Ministerial Power in Canada. And that is certainly something that uh, has become in vogue as a result of what's been happening in Ottawa in the last little while. From what I'm reading of you is a, a real concern with respect to freedom as well. And, yes. and, and the, the relationship between history and freedom. And I think we'll kind of get, get into that here now. And so tell us, why is Toronto so upset about the name of Henry Dundas? What, what has this poor Viscount Dundas <laughs> caused all this trouble? The story actually goes back a while. Henry Dundas, uh, Viscount Melville, was a, a Scottish politician from the 1790s. I mean, he's roughly in his 50s at that point. He was an important man in the Pitt the Younger government. He was, you know, Home Secretary, Secretary of the Admiralty, Secretary of War. A very influential man, a very influential Scotsman. The issue is that Henry Dundas, at some point in the 1790s, 
pronounced himself against the abolition of slavery. So this accusation was actually raised in Edinburgh, his hometown, where there's a magnificent monument on St. Andrew's Square in Edinburgh. The people there uh, convinced city council to put a new plaque that would explain that Lord Melville, Henry Dundas, uh, had done great harm in his career. So this took place 2016, 2017, if I understand correctly. When the George Floyd murder took place in 2020, things caught fire and a petition was launched. And I say petition, quote unquote, was launched to remove Henry Dundas's name from the important street in Toronto that runs east-west. And so, okay, there's always calls on city council to do all sorts of things. That's fine. But the mayor got involved and the mayor pronounced himself in favor of changing the name of Dundas and Dundas Square, a name that has been part of Toronto for 225 years. I tell you, most people in Toronto do not know who Henry Dundas is. How could you blame him? I mean, he's, he was not, he never set foot in Toronto, but he was important. And he, the name was given by Simcoe, the F Lieutenant Governor of Upper Canada, who came to our shores in 1792. He was appointed in 1791. And of course, you know, had to give names to the dirt streets of, of York. And he thought, well, you know, I'll name one in honor of my boss, you know, Henry Dundas. And so we mm. were given Henry Dundas. Dundas and Simcoe and Pitt and Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, who was the, the, the dynamic agent in favor of abolition in the British government. Well, he wasn't in the government. He was a member of, of the Commons, however. Right. We're all friends. They were all friends. They were all friends. Right. So it made it made sense for Simcoe to name a uh, street in honor of Dundas. And you know what? It was forgotten after that. Dundas became part of the streetscape and everything lived happily ever after. So we're thrust into this situation where the mayor has asked city council in the 2020, please look into this issue, come up with a rationale as to why we should get rid of a street that has been a part of the Toronto streetscape for 225 years. So did he say, find the rationale so we can get rid of it? Or did he say, let's look into it? No, he was much more categorical about that. For him, it was a question of giving substance to the accusation that Dundas had been a major criminal. I mean, I, I, we're talking about a catastrophic criminal who, who would have prolonged the presence of slavery, of the slavery trade, that he was responsible. That was the accusation made in the summer of 2020. The mayor followed through. And uh, last year in 2021, the city staff provided a report. And of course, the city staff said, well, you know, Henry Dundas is the worst thing that ever happened to mankind. Not only did he perpetuate slavery, he defeated the French in Egypt and caused the colonial expansion of Britain into India. I'm not exaggerating, okay? And on top of that, did tremendous harm to the indigenous people of Upper Canada. And Those yet are he, the he was never here. He was never here. Now, again, you know, he was an influential member of the British cabinet and the British cabinet was running affairs. Okay. So it's not, right. it's not that the problem is that he never did any of those things. The record shows that when Henry Dundas got involved in the debates on abolition, he played a key role, a positive role. The long and the short of it is this William Wilberforce, again, that great advocate of, of abolition, 
mm. had proposed a resolution in the House of Commons in London in 1791 saying, you know, abolition of slavery should happen. This house should speak, should resolve to abolish slavery. It failed. Wilberforce comes in in 1792, gives a long speech, presents his own petition of Scottish merchants. And he was close to the Scottish merchants. He says, okay, if you want to make this work, let's propose the word gradual abolition of slavery. And it passed. It's the only time it ever passed because he was able to find a compromise. Not only that, but Dundas tabled a plan to get rid of abolition before the end of the 1700s, okay, before the end of the 18th century. Everything this man did was contrary to the accusation leveled against him in Toronto and in Edinburgh. So, of course, it took a while for the historians to get, they were so taken aback by this ridiculous accusation, it took a while to, to document it. It's not like Henry Dundas is a common concern for everybody. Uh, it's not. But you know, the, the record has shown that Dundas played a positive role. He was a friend of Wilberforce. He then became Secretary of the Admiralty, Secretary of War at a time when Europe is under fire. The French Revolution is happening. European monarchs are scared that this is going to launch a continental uh, regicide that everybody's Every monarch's going to lose their heads, like the mm -hmm. like like King Louis the the sixteenth, and they're at war. They're at war. So yeah, he's going to be at war. They're going to be at war in the Caribbean. Dundas is a part of that, but he there's absolutely no question that he's he's not in favor of slavery. He is a consistent advocate against slavery, and the accusation of him being singularly guilty. Of, of British imperial expansion is simply wrong. It's simply wrong. The British government, King George III, were adamantly against abolition. There is no way Henry Dundas could ever have stopped things on his own. And he wrote about it. And in the article I wrote in the Dorchester Review, I document what has been discovered about Henry Dundas and about his very positive role in, in changing the minds of the, of, of the British, of changing the minds of the Scottish merchants who were his friends and who he managed to convince not to not to vote against the resolution. I mean, he showed real courage, this man. He should be mm. celebrated as a champion. Instead, the city of Toronto decided that, that, in, that instead of doing research, they hired a PR company. And a PR company started talking to people who were like-minded and said, well, what do you think about changing the name Dundas? And of course, everybody said, well, yeah, it should be done. It should be done. For me, it points to a disease in this country that has now taken hold. Mm -hmm. And it started with, you know, it started with something banal like the Langevin block when Prime Minister Trudeau came in and said, you know, we're going to get rid of the uh, Langevin block. The Langevin block was the, is the big, you know, Beaux-Arts mansion that sits across the street from Parliament Hill where right. the Prime Minister's office has been located since the 1970s. And We'll change the name because uh, Langevin once said a terrible thing about indigenous people. Well, he said it once, and and he, you know it was never part of his of his of his thing. There's a reason why uh, Langevin had been honored with that building that was completely set aside, and basically we we got into a pattern where facts didn't matter, right? Where where decisions about how we name things uh, are casual, and there's no tradition. There's no there's no past to anything. You know, the Langevin block was dedicated in 1892, 1893. It's been around for 125 years. Why change the name? Mm. Why change the name? Ryerson University. Uh, Edgerton Ryerson was a champion of 
of education for everybody, a champion of consistency in education, of proper funding for education, of education for boys and girls, that everybody had to go to school, that everybody had to be educated, that we should have public libraries, public libraries, can you imagine, that we should have a teacher's college. And not only did he just talk about it, he made it happen. Right. That he should, we should have a teacher's college. We should have a university. He was part of the group that started Victoria University, first in Coburg, Ontario, and then moved to the city of Toronto as part of the U of T empire. This was a man who had been a missionary to the Ojibwe people, who spoke Ojibwe, who had friends who were indigenous mm-hmm. all his life, all his life. Edgerton Ryerson was a man who was deeply admired in Ontario society. And when the occasion came up to name a new kind of university, in the late 1940s, a new kind of university that would be, well, it wasn't going to be a university, it was going to be a polytechnical. This is completely radical in in Ontario in the 1940s. A polytechnical that would bring together practical skill and theoretical knowledge. Mm. And Ryerson University, well, you know, people said, you know, well, that we had a champion of that kind of education, and that was Edgerton Ryerson. Let's name it after him. And it made sense. Mm -hmm. So, Scroll forward 75 years, and people said, well, you know that Edgerton Ryerson, this is what he did. He wrote a letter that supported Indian residential schools. Mm. And out of that, like, where does this come from? Where does this come from? Show me evidence that Edgerton Ryerson actually supported Indian residential schools the way they have been documented uh, over the last five years. Well, there is no evidence. There's a one piece of evidence. In 1847, 1847, at the behest of the colonial bureaucracy, colonial Mm -hmm. government, he was asked, can you propose a model? We have an opportunity here to create an institution that would help Indigenous boys adapt to modern conditions. We're talking 1847 here. Right, Right. The world is changing. Railroads are being built and, you know, the world is changing. We know that, you know, they feel things are changing. What can you do? Mm -hmm. So Ryerson sits down, writes a letter, and he says, you know, there's a great model in Switzerland. Where in Switzerland, Barry, and he says, you know, this is how they teach their young men to farm. They have, they go into the field, they work in the morning, they look after the cattle, they look after their crops, they do the work, they're taught the work of agriculture. In the afternoon, they learn how to read and write and survey and mechanics. It was very important. They had to learn mechanics to look after the the increasing sophistication of agricultural tools. This is what he proposes. All right. He dies two years before John A. MacDonald brings in Indian residential schools. Two years before. I mean, he never got involved in any of this issue. So out of that, out of that comes all sorts of accusations. And you know, in a manner that is typical of the Langevin controversy or even the Dundas controversy, I see a link through all these things. People who are high up, who have authority, decide that they are going to rewrite history, that they are going to lambaste, tear apart the reputation of, of people who are influential in our history and uh, eliminate them from the landscape, from the cityscape, and from the culturescape of our, of our society. Langevin, MacDonald, Ryerson, and now Dundas. And again, based on no facts, as if facts don't matter. 
we hear the term virtual signaling, right? It's yes. the idea that, well, because of the political situation that we now find ourselves, the politicians have got to show, oh, they're right on top with everyone else who are condemning the horrible colonial past and all of those kinds of things. What does this do when we take away the history of not only our cities, but our country? What is that going to do to us as as a free society? Because to me, I see a lot of danger here. I see a lot of danger, and basically it comes down to this. We're a young society. I go to Europe. I'm lucky I get a chance to go to Europe once in a while, and I see what an old country is about. A lot of constraints, sometimes a heavy history, uh, because you're surrounded by it. We're in the new world. And we've only got 400 years of history, and we're talking about the inheritors of the European tradition. Mm -hmm. I'm not dismissing the indigenous realities of 10,000 years of of existence in North America. I'm not dismissing Mm -hmm. that. But we have roots. Right. We have roots. My ancestors arrived in Canada in 1750. 1750. Yours probably, well, maybe a little bit later. Um, (laughs) No idea, unfortunately. Well, this is a terrible thing. I come from a very poor family in Newfoundland that never even kept track of our history. We have records. We have records, sir. You can find out. You can find oh, out. Wonderful. I need um, to get into it. You should. We, we have we have roots. We have traditions. We have made errors. I'm not disputing that we have made grave errors. We have right. made grave errors with indigenous people in particular, right. with our minorities. The record is plain. The record mm-hmm. is plain. I'm happy to talk about it. I'm happy to talk about it. And I'm saying that we need to keep our roots, that a society that has no root, a society that says, forget about the past, let's focus on the future. What we've seen in those societies, we saw it in Soviet societies, in communist Mm -hmm. societies. We also saw it in fascist societies. It was about the new man, the new man. And it goes back, I think, even to the, uh, my understanding of the French Revolution, you know, the idea of destroy everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, a, it was a revolution. I mean, it was a revolution that the past had to be thrown out because it was an anchor that stopped the, 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 the march of history. So cut off the root, cut off the anchor. But this does not lead to anything positive. The French Revolution demonstrated that. Right. Think of all the murders. <laughs> the, the, the catastrophe, the catastrophe. Of, of the French Revolution. Mm. If we cut off our roots like that, we basically let society drift. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I don't want to be misunderstood. There are lots of roots, and there are roots that we have buried deep. Mm-hmm. You know, again, the indigenous root is something that is worth preserving. It's something that's worth cherishing. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with talking about the indigenous root, the indigenous presence. We should We should celebrate it. But that does not mean that we have to get rid of Edgerton Ryerson, of Dundas, of John A. MacDonald, or of poor Hector Louis Langevin. These people gave of their time, of their genius, of their efforts to build something good. I'm not defending tyrants. Mm -hmm. I'm not defending evil people. Mm -hmm. They made mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. It's not a, it's not a cheap excuse. No. They're also men of no. their time. They're all men. Okay. They're, they're all white men. They're mm. men of their time. But all those guys in their time were impressively progressive. They knew 
where society was going. They had a vision. They had ambition for the country. All of these guys had ambition for the country. Why should we relegate them to something, to, to, to basically to the, 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 the dust bins of history? Mm. Henry Dundas. Now, again, and, and Henry Dundas is an interesting case because nobody, as I said earlier, nobody knows anything about Henry Dundas. Right. Dundas, Dundas Street has been a, a fixture of Toronto for 225 years. Yeah. The cost of changing, and I'm not, it's, it's not just about money. I mean, the city of Toronto has a $15 billion budget, and this was going to cost, you know, anywhere between six and $10 million. Big deal. It's a lot of money. And I think that for six million bucks, you can do a heck of a lot of good. Right. But, but, you know, that's, that's beside the point. Dundas is part of who we are as the city of Toronto. We, mm. and I, as I said in my article in the Dorchester Review, we should be celebrating Dundas. We should actually call it Henry Dundas Street, <laughs> not just Dundas Street, but Henry Dundas Street and celebrate the fact that this man did a lot of good. He's the guy who appointed Simcoe. Lieutenant Governor of Upper Canada. Simcoe's first act was to say there will be no more slave trade in our district. The first place in the world where slavery ended, the trade of slaves was going to end. It ended here. Why? Because Dundas appointed Simcoe on purpose. He also appointed Osgood on purpose, the Chief Justice. And Osgood had the same view. It's not an accident. It's not an accident. So when to, mm. to say that Dundas somehow perpetuated anti-black feelings, anti-black racism in, in, in our city is, is just cat catastrophically wrong, just catastrophically wrong. And you can't go like that. You can't, let's celebrate our past is my point. Mm. Let's mm. talk about, let's elevate new, new monuments. I'd, I'd love to see monuments, points of remembrance to celebrate the indigenous presence, to celebrate every presence. We don't do enough to celebrate our women. We don't mm -hmm. do enough to celebrate our minorities. Why is there such a weakness of imagination? Right. You know, is it that our city has no soul? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, this th this was an accusation of Pierre Trudeau, not mine. Okay. Now, tell me, what did we mean when we say a city has a soul? That's a good question. I mean, it's a question we all ask, right? What is the soul of St. John's? You know, what is the soul of Toronto? I've been here. I've been living here. I'm born in Montreal. Uh, I've lived in Toronto since 1977. And Toronto does have a soul. Pierre Trudeau is wrong. It was wrong. There is a soul here, but we're really lousy at celebrating it. We think that mm. the soul of Toronto is simply multiculturalism. I mean, yeah, it's that, of course. It's that. There's a big part. I mean, the city of Toronto is visibly a multicultural society. And it works. It mm -hmm. works. Why is it that it works? Because there is a certain, there's a soul of respect. There's a soul of civility. It used to be known as Toronto the good, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. and, and, and I, I mean, that that had a quite a, you know, a history in the British Empire. And, and, and that's another thing, you know, just the whole concept of the British Empire as if, you know, granted, uh, just like any empire, the United States, uh, you name it, we've all had empires that have made horrendous mistakes over the years. For sure. But, you know, we also have the gift of uh, individual freedom, the, the uh, rule of law. We have representative democracy that comes from our British heritage. And somehow we seem to have forgotten a lot of this. I'm afraid so. I'm afraid so. I think that, um, again, I, I'm not dismissing the fact that people here have, have hard lives. Toronto is a working town. It's a working city. It brings its own hardships. 
Life is expensive here. There's a lot of things that are wrong with it. There's not enough places to play. There's a lot of things wrong. But the the idea of of soul is that there's still an ambition, an ambition to, to do better, but at the same time, an ambition to nurture those roots, to say, you know, we, we come from somewhere. We come from somewhere. There are traditions in our society in, in, in Toronto that are distinct, and we need to champion those. Right. We're not going to champion those by cutting roots off, is my point. Let's yeah. discover new roots. Let's not, and certainly, I mean, again, if, if Henry Dundas had been the monster that some people think he was, I'd be the first one to say, let's get rid of it. Mm-hmm. But he's not. He was not the monster anywhere close to that. So it's just a this is where public policy has simply gone wrong. And, you know, there's a process to it. There's a practiced process that has been put in place by people who should know better, people in government who should know better. And I find that inexcusable. We are going to end up repeating the mistakes of the past if we don't understand who we are. I, I was reading recently David McCullough, who said, who you know, the great biographer of John Adams and all the rest. He said, history tells us who we are and, and why we are the way we are. You know, it's like if we don't understand our history, we're going to repeat those mistakes. We're also not going to build on what we've learned from the past and and that to me is is the real concern I have going forward with respect to individual freedom, individual rights. And we're losing that in, in a huge way. We see this collective or at least this uh, concept of we are defined by our identity. We're both uh, white male individuals. And, you know, that somehow tells us that we're the oppressors of the world, it seems, coming up. And 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 it's 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 just so like you know instead of being judged by the character we're being judged by our skin and who said that once i want to bring back the element that 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 concerns you particularly and that's the freedom the freedom of expression the freedom of thinking in all those cases langevin mcdonald ryerson mm-hmm. the people behind the efforts have systematically shut out the voices of dissent systematically again they put out these reports that are put together by people who are not expert, who don't know anything. Well, they're propagandists, aren't they? They are. They are. I mean, again, you know, if, if we're serious about things like this, and I think the city of Toronto is simply not serious. Have hearings. You have yeah. hearings. You say, okay, you are of this view, and we'd like to hear a dissenting view. You, you, make, it, you make it so that the process is transparent and open instead of saying, oh, well, we collected views on the internet and this is what they said. Well, come on. Is this a serious process? Could you imagine the government of Canada functioning like this? I mean, I'm talking about serious laws, criminal laws, tax laws, you know, the budget. You don't go by, 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 by simply saying, oh, you know, people, we've collected views and here they are. Mm. It's, it's, it's a laughing, it's a, it's a laughing stock. They come back to the process. The city of Toronto, again, a budget of $15 billion does not have a committee of experts to look into this. You know, we should be doing, I've written about this uh, uh, quite a bit about, about our, our, our city names. I mean, for me, a city name is an opportunity to open the book of history. You know, it's mm. a public display, costs very little. Henry Dundas, Secretary of War during the French Revolution, you know, something like that. Why is Elizabeth Street Elizabeth Street? Why, who is Gerard? You see this in Europe. You see it in part of the United States where you have street names and, and below the street name, you'll have a, you can have a second name. You know, you can have right. a second name. I'm saying there's, 
lots of roots. Bring out the roots. Bring out the history. But create a structure where decision-making can be can be done in a dispassionate way. Where you can say, look, you know, how is it that the city of Toronto does not, I'm going to be controversial here. How is it that the city of Toronto does not salute John A. Macdonald, the Prime Minister of Canada for 20 years, the first Prime Minister of Canada in 20 years? We do not have, we do not have a John A. Macdonald Street in Toronto. I think we should have one. Um, there is a Lincoln Street, a Washington Street, uh, pretty well. I actually did a, a Washington a, Street. There is a Washington Street in Toronto. It's not a, a George an Washington Street. <laughs> it's not, I mean, it's he's not being... a George Washington Street, Barry. It's not a George Washington Street. Oh. But we have, you know, what we have street. I, I mean, I actually played this game once. Every prime, every president of the United States. Uh, or I should say, there's a street for every name of a pre- American president in, in, okay. in Toronto. So it's right. not really, I'm being honest here, they're not named okay. after American presidents, but okay. still, we should have a name to honor prime ministers. In my article on in the Dorchester Review, I talk about a young U of T student who was called Dundas, who was killed. He was hurt twice and, and finally killed in battle in, um, in 1917. Mm-hmm. Why not name Dundas Street after him? Uh, well, because we don't talk about the First World War. We talk about the First World War on November 11th. Thank goodness we still do that. Mm. I mean, how long, how long are we going to hold on to that tradition? It's the one moment in our country when there is a time of solemnity, where, mm. we, where we honor the dead, we honor the sacrifice, and we also honor the generation of people, not just the soldiers, of people who suffered and who, who suffered terrible loss, including in Newfoundland. I never mm-hmm. forget. I never forget Newfoundland. My grandfather, he served in World War One, and so he was in the Beaumont Hamel when the entire regiment was wiped out in about 20 minutes. And I can't imagine, you know, 19 years old on that battlefield. It just, even now, it just causes me, my hair, the little bit I got left, uh, stand up straight. Then, uh, then you know, we, we, we have these historical experiences in our families and likewise in our cities and in our country and these things need to be exposed so that we can learn from them the beaumont amel uh, monument in france I, I had a chance to go see it two years oh, ago, before oh, the wow. pandemic and it's beautiful it's it's oh. a moment of real pride for for newfoundlanders and for and for canadians too mm-hmm. even though even though newfoundlanders were not part of canada in those days but we no, still right. we, i still made a point to go and it's a wonderful thing to see. Yeah. We need to do more. We need to do more history, not less history is my point. We yeah. need to teach our kids history. What we do in this country, and you know, this goes to the root of it. Well, mm-hmm. Again, I use that word root. It's very important. We, we teach in terms of our students is an absolute mockery, Barry. Most provinces do not require, and that includes Newfoundland, do not require a Canadian history course to graduate high school. All right. You, you, now they, they do offer Canadian history, of course, but you don't, it's not a requirement. How can we seriously expect people to be honest, good citizens without knowing their own history? I mean, mm. again, I, I refuse to believe that. Of course, they'll be honest and good, but you don't have no root. You have no sense of root. How can you, I mean, what is your stake in society? Mm. What is your stake if you don't know anything about it? High school history in Ontario, Quebec, and Manitoba is a requirement. Everywhere else, it's not, which means that for most kids, the history of Canada that they get is when they're 12 years old in grade seven. That is appalling. 
That is appalling. And I don't buy the argument that social studies is history. No, history is a different kind of thinking. History mm -hmm. is about transporting yourself into a different period, understanding the way people thought, criticizing, of course, understanding where society has evolved. How has it evolved? It's not about trashing the past, trashing our grandfathers, our great-grandfathers, our great-grandmothers. It's not about that. We need to know our history. This is unacceptable for me that we have so little, so little grounding in our history. So when you have a society that is not grounded in history, then you can say anything about it. You can say Edgerton Ryerson was a criminal, a genocidal maniac. John A. Macdonald was a genocidal maniac. Well, if you don't know anything about John A. Macdonald, of course, you say, well, you know, maybe, maybe that's a valid opinion. It's mm -hmm. emphatically not a, a valid opinion. It's emphatically not. And yet, and yet the media, we, can we talk about the media? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. No, because, because here's the point. Here's the thing. If we don't have a history, when the media speaks, we think the media is speaking truth. Exactly. And I've, I'm utterly appalled by, by the media. Uh, and, and, you know, by the way, it casually tosses off motivations. I mm. mean, to this day, you'll hear about mass graves being uh, discovered on the grounds of residential schools. There is no mass graves. There are possibly graves of, of people buried, possibly, all right, possibly. But it's not mass graves. Mass graves is when there are so many dead that you bury them together. It exactly. is, we're talking Holocaust. We're talking what's happening yep. in the Ukraine. We're happening yep. about, we're, we're talking about Rwanda. We're talking about the, 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 the horrific, horrific events of, of, of mankind's history. That's yep. not what happened. That's right. not what happened. And yet you see it tossed in the media. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The mass graves in residential schools. Come on. It's not serious. It's not here. It's not serious. And and we're not. And, and, and again, the media, I mean, there used to be a time when there was, uh, if you were going to go to journalism school, you had to take a, at least a, one course in history. I'm sure there wasn't a moment like that. But now they don't have to. And, and now everybody's a journalist. So, you know, you can say whatever you want. It's a real problem. I think that our historical literacy, and it's a problem we share with the Americans. It's a problem I think that all, you know, modern new world societies have. And it's a problem apparently. I mean, I'm good in good contact with a bunch of historians in France and in, in, in Britain. And they're now saying, they're now saying that they're being cut off from their history. I mean, I find that hard to believe, but you know, even, even in their storied, deeply grounded societies, people are being cut off from their history. I think it's a terrible thing and it only leads to democratic pathologies. If we don't understand, and, and, and I say, and I emphasize all of Canadian history, the good and the bad, the good and the bad, we have to understand. Canadians need to understand. And let's start having mature conversations about how we remember our past and make room for everyone. I think mm. it's entirely possible. I think it could be an exciting project. Absolutely. I think it's a project that most people would want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're, we're curious. I think we should be curious. Well, why is a park named after this person? You know, like, do we really, I mean, in Toronto, I'm not aware. I come back to war for a second, but in Toronto, I'm not aware of any public park named after, after uh, a great battle of the first world war, the second world war. Mm. Um, Again, I, I'm not being macabre here. No. I don't want to be macabre. But a lot of young guys in Toronto died in those battlefields. Mm -hmm. You know, why do we not have 
a Vimy Ridge Park. Maybe we do have one. I, I honestly, it's not something I, I checked before, but mm. I, I doubt it. You know, why do Montreal had a Vimy a Vimy Park and they got they they named it they changed it and I think it's going to come back. Mm. Um, Montreal is a good example of how it's possible to have a structure to systematically name streets, rename streets when you have to, but there is a process and it's a, a learned process. You bring in experts. You don't bring just activists. You bring in experts and say, you know, can we, what can we do to honor this event or this person? Let's say we, we take on the job of honoring the great women. I'm going to talk about Toronto. It could be St. John's. It can be anywhere. Let's honor the great women who have supported, who have had a shaping influence on our society. Well, let's draw up a list. Let's talk to people. Let's talk to people about influential women in our past. Why? Because it brings, for me, and I think for many others, a sense of inspiration. An inspiration mm -hmm. that this person or this community or this event showed a particular ambition. These people spoke out. They did things because they wanted, you know, in that great phrase of the um, the Order of Canada, they wanted a better country. They wanted mm -hmm. a better country. I love that phrase. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they wished for a better country. We don't do enough. We just don't do enough. And I think that our democracy is weakened by it. And I think that the debate engender that, that conversation is being stifled. And mm -hmm. I think that that points to uh, a direction for our society that is not uh, healthy. No, it, it ultimately uh, leads to a lack of respect for our freedom. Freedom of speech, as you've just outlined very clearly, only one side of this matter was given any kind of a hearing, and that wasn't even an educated side. No. This is the problem when, when we fail to recognize the importance of who we are based on our history. I had a, an associate work with me some years ago and she was from, or her family was from Eastern Europe. And uh, she said, Barry, I, you know, you, you, you talk a lot about history because I, every time I, I would go to court, I would often in my uh, factums and so forth, I'll, I'll bring up the history and of whatever the topic was. And uh, she says, you, you, you just always are talking about history. I mean, I mean, uh, what is this French and English thing all about anyhow, you know? And I'm like, like, okay, so I but know how, you're, you're how, a first-generation Canadian. You've gone yes, through our education system, yeah. um, and you have not understood the French-English experience in Canada. So literally, I mean, I have to sit people down and and uh, who I've you know had to mentor going through law and so forth, and say, hey, you know what? This is extremely important because. If we don't understand how we got here, then then you're going to, of course, you're going to say, well, it doesn't make sense and, and all the rest of it. But the, the beauty is, is that after several years working for me and then, you know, moving on, she said, you know, Barry, I appreciate your emphasis on history. So <laughs> as a lawyer, Barry, you're nowhere if you don't understand precedent, if you don't understand, Absolutely. if you're a doctor, yeah. if you're, you know, if you're a good doctor, you're, you're going to ask, what's your history? What's your history? If you're an engineer. Yeah. You are you are founded in history because engineering is based on past mistakes. You do it this way because that way it collapsed. You do it this way because that way it doesn't work. Everything yeah. we do, knowledge is ground in history. So how can we reject history? It's 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 fundamentally important, and we don't appreciate. It. I think we don't appreciate how history is important. I think it's it's fundamental to intelligence. It's fundamental to 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 anything we do. So why should naming streets or naming universities or naming uh, buildings be any different? Uh, it should be grounded in the same kind of 
same kind of attitude, same kind of openness. I, I agree. Absolutely. Uh, Patrice, this is uh, very, very exciting, very interesting. I want to just switch gears a wee bit yeah. uh, uh, towards the end of our time here. And you have done a lot of great writing. I uh, I want to commend Thank you, you on, on your writing. In fact, I've only just seen right now the title of your book, Prime Ministerial Power in Canada, its origins under McDonald, Laurier, and Borden. Given what's happened in recent years, and I, I, I've, to, to be honest with you, I've studied political science in the past, and yes. uh, I have always been very interested in the power of leaders like so leaders and and particularly the office of prime minister the prime minister in this country jeffrey simpson called it the friendly dictator um and it it all depends on who the person is as to whether or not they're going to be a friendly dictator and unlike the united states where you've got a lot of checks and balances with respect to the president in canada if you look at the canadian constitution which is many documents but if you look through the canadian constitution there's not even a mention of prime minister and yet here we have the most powerful person in the country with absolutely no constitutional position whatsoever but it's mere tradition you talk about history isn't it wonderful <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, how is it that we could have a situation yeah. where one person, when that one person speaks, everyone jumps? And and I'm concerned about freedom in this country. I'm concerned about yes. when we have a situation like we did back in February that a prime minister out of whim, I'm sorry, but yeah. it was out of whim to just say, hey, you know what? I'm going to invoke the Emergencies Act. I haven't tried this lever of power lately. And uh, so let me pull it. I want to be the first one to pull it. And, and I'm like, okay, now there's something going on here. So help me. Help me with... Uh, what you have found in the study of the Office of Prime Minister and what we might want to be thinking about going forward. There is no denying the reality that in our system, uh, the Prime Minister is extraordinarily powerful. It is a view that is commonly shared, not just among political scientists, but around the world, that in the Westminster system, okay, the, the constitutional monarchy that we have with a parliamentary system, the prime minister in this country has far more power, far more latitude than in any other Westminster country. The prime minister in this country uh, has enormous power. And the book I wrote on prime ministerial power was a response to the view that this was a recent thing, that uh, it really started in the 1980s. Now, when I read the fellow who wrote this is Donald Savoy, New Brunswicker, brilliant writer, And his book, Governing from the Center, published in 1999, has had more impact, I'm sure, than any other book in political science in this country. When I read this book, I I said, my understanding of history is that we've always had prime ministers. You know, we talk about R.B. Bennett, R.B. Bennett in the 1930s, who had a government of one. You know, there's a famous cartoon where every minister looks like R.B. Bennett. There's always been a tradition of strong prime ministers. It is part of our governing tradition. So what I wrote in my book, Prime Ministerial Power, in Canada was an examination of Johnny MacDonald, Wilfrid Laurier, and Robert Borden, and how they ensured that the structures of government responded to them personally. Structures, policies, style. We've had in this country very strong prime ministers. We've also been blessed, I will use that word, Barry, with really good prime ministers. There have been terrible prime ministers, but overall, 
for 150 years, we've had good prime ministers who have done a good job of governing. The prime minister in this country is not unopposed. We do have some checks and balances. We do have cabinet. Now, you'll say, well, they're all appointed by the prime minister. Yeah, of course. But they have to pick from a select bunch. And the reality is anybody can get elected prime <laughs> To, to the House of Commons. And so the Prime Minister doesn't have a rich picking. You know, he has to work with, with cabinet. We do have parliament. Parliament does oppose the Prime Minister. We do have a loyal opposition. We have courts. You know, we have courts that can block government action. We have the media that is consistently providing a block on the Prime Minister. We have provinces premiers who are consistently attacking the authority of the government of Canada and the prime minister. The indigenous community is now, you know, for the last 50, 60 years, has been challenging Ottawa. We have elections. We have a democratic system. Now, you're asking me what can be done. I mean, I recognize that the prime minister has too much latitude. That said, I also really appreciate that in this country, we have an executive, the prime minister, cabinet, that is vigorous, to use that Alexander Hamilton expression, that is vigorous, that is consequential. When we decide to get something done in this country, there is no ifs, ands, or buts. Things get done. It takes will. It takes administrative ability. But I take comfort in the fact that once the government does want to act, it can act decisively, notwithstanding all the other oppositions that I've just listed. What can be done? I think there's a couple of things that can be done. I think parliament needs to change. I think parliamentary procedures have to change. I'm always appalled at how little scrutiny our budgets get. That's really, that's important. Budgets matter. Uh, parliamentarians are completely overwhelmed. We need to rejig parliament for the 21st century. It, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work the way it's working now. We need to free members of parliament. We're talking provincially and federally here. We need to free them up. We need to change our culture so that these people have an opportunity to voice their views. I resent the fact that the prime minister can squash debate all the time. This is cultural. It's not legal. We need to develop an attitude in this country where we tolerate a diversity of views. We don't condemn people. We just don't listen to them if you don't, li if you don't like it. But give them the freedom to think. Give them the freedom to talk. Give them the instruments to talk. We don't do enough in, on television. We don't do enough on the internet. I don't know what my MP stands for. I know his name. And I watch CPAC religiously. I mean, at three in the morning when I can't sleep, you know what I'm doing. I'm watching <laughs> CPAC. I'm sure you're doing the same, Barry. Oh, absolutely. Uh, because I like watching these guys debate. Well, yeah, me too. But look, <laughs> here's the thing. Okay, I'm going to push back a wee bit. Please, um, please. There's an alignment going on right now in this country. In other words, for those who are interested in history, those who are of the conservative side, and I'm even going to be like Edmund Burke kind of conservative, you know, just we don't change things just for the sake of change. We have to have a good reason as to why we want to change. Yes. Because why? Because it's already working, right? Yes, I agree. Uh, I mean, that, that was the Burkean yes. concept. But what I sense right now is that we're going into this massive change with the technology, the social media, all of the new interface that they're talking about between human beings and computers and all the rest. And then, so some of the basic assumptions or the basic presuppositions with respect to what is it to be a human, the, the presuppositions are that 
human beings are like machines. As long as we're fed, as long as we're clothed, who cares about beauty? Who cares about philosophy? Who cares about religion? Who cares about the arts and the culture, the purposes and the experiences of life? We, we seem to kind of put it off on the shelf. And so as long as we give them circus and bread, we're fine. Yeah. We have a situation in this country where I think the prime minister, the current prime minister, I think he is in line with many in academia, many in the judiciary, many in the journalist world who are all thinking pretty much the same kind of thing. We don't allow opposition. Over the last two years, I think that this is a perfect example. Over the last two years, we've had a situation where only one narrative of what is going on with the COVID-19. Anyone who has a different idea are disinformation. They um, they don't know what they're talking about, and and we're hearing so there's there, there's a lot of dissonance. There's a lot of confusion going on, but the accepted narrative is the accepted narrative. When we have an alignment like we do, and I think we have an alignment right now, a very secular, progressive alignment in all of the major institutions. There is a sense of, there's a huge portion. I don't know what they would be, but you know, I would say 25, 30% of the people in this country are not lined the same way and their views are not being heard. And then when they are being heard, they're told that they're full of disinformation and all of that. And it strikes me that that is not that that's not a recipe for peace, for civil peace. And I, I, I want us to get to civil peace. I'm, I, I'm, I'm troubled by, you know, when Jagmeet Singh went up to Peterborough and there was yes. a big news story about it, you know? Yes. And I mean, this is not Canada. This is not what we espouse. This is not what we want to be. Uh, but yet this is happening. And, and I'm wondering if part of it is that people are just simply not being heard. I agree. I agree. I think that human nature is a lot more complicated than what we eat and, and, and what shelter we have. That's fundamentally important. I'm not denying it. It's existential. It's important. Mm -hmm. But what do people want? People need a job. They need eat. They need shelter. They need a sense of security. They need a sense of belonging. They need a sense of belonging. And when they see their prime minister dismiss ideology, the idea of history, at some point inside, I think they react. They may not be able to articulate it even. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People want dignity. People want dignity. They want justice. They want dignity. Our system, again, sometimes it's clumsy, but we have done that. You know, we've, we've, we've come a long way in our society to work towards dignity. I always, I always like this to, to, to bring out this example. There was a book that came out a couple of years ago on freak shows in Canada freak shows you know the last time we only got rid of freak shows those freak circuses in canada in the early 1970s what dignity did we have in in in, in showing off people with deformities mm. 1970s man and it's only because the toronto star said like this is not a really good thing to do mm. people want dignity people want justice people want a sense of destiny Mm -hmm. They want right. a sense of democracy. Right. So when you do have opinion leaders cutting off debate, we're talking about governments. I'm talking yep. about mayors, prime ministers. I'm talking about the media who 
don't want to give the other side. I think at some point there is something inside that says, I don't belong here. People don't think I belong. This I don't belong in this Canada that is being projected. This is deeply malignant. Yes. And it's out of ignorance. Again, it's out of ignorance. I like Burke. I think it was him who said, you know, we function in three dimensions. We live with the past. We live with the present. We live with the future. Mm. All three at the same time. And I think that that makes life interesting. It makes life fulfilling. You work, you do your job, you think, you love, you you exist in time. Yeah. Yeah. But you're also thinking, if you're a good human being, you're also thinking of the future. No, I'm going to drive my car and I'm going to be safe. I'm not going to hit that person. Right. I'm not going to insult that person. Jagmeet Singh right. does not deserve what he was subjected to in Peterborough. It's and, disgusting. And it's and disgusting. nor does the prime minister deserve, even though Absolutely one may not. disagree with him, of getting rocks thrown at him. I Absolutely mean, not. It's appalling. It's appalling. it's appalling. It's appalling. It's utterly appalling. But I'm saying, we how do we change this? I think mm. that we need to have a better discourse. And yeah. I think you're right. We're at a stage now where we're facing a new wave of technology. I have three adult daughters. I have grandkids. I'm in association with students on a daily basis. Right. They're looking at a future that's very different from what I lived, right. with very, very different challenges than what I, ha I had to live with. They need to think the same way, in the sense that they need to think of the past. They need to think of the present, the time in which they exist, but they right. also have to think about the future. And when we start just thinking about the future and just think about what might be and simply cast aside the past, I think that we are doing injury to good well-being. We need to think in three dimensions. And I think that when we do that, we're happier and we do better policy. And I think we have better government. But this can only happen with that transformation and rediscovering that wisdom of Edmund Burke that, you know, we don't cut off our roots, that there are good things in the past. The French Revolution did, we're going to come back, I love that we come back to this. Uh, <laughs> That the French Revolution did enormous harm. The French recognize it. The French know that they yeah. they did terrible things, and they they are they're, they're torn by it. The display recently over remembering Napoleon Bonaparte mm. demonstrated that there there's, there's a divided soul in France. At what point do we remember the past? How do we remember the past? Because they, it is inevitable and it is inescapable. But only through inquiry and through discussion. Can we achieve a better understanding of the past, which is, in many ways, completely unknowable? I know this, you know, as a historian, unknowable. We know only a, a small fraction yes. of what happened in the past, but that yes. does not stop us from the mission of better understanding, not just the, the past of the dominant segments of society, i.e. white males, but of all society. And I think that if we can achieve that, if we can raise that awareness, if we can educate our kids and, 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 and learn to talk about history in a more intelligent way, I think that we'll be a better off. We'll be a better society, a more respectful society, and a more democratic society, and a freer society. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think that's that's really well said and well put. I hope that as we as we go forward and uh like part part of the problems I have with um the office of prime minister, I I I feel I, I'm so sorry, I'm just kind of going back to that a little bit. Just uh, the, the 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 struggle I have is when a prime minister gets up in the house and any leader gets up in the house and he's asked the question, and they don't even answer the question. 
It's so insulting to Canadians as a whole. Obviously, you're not going to have a debate. You're just simply going to do talking points and you're going to condemn the other side for disinformation. And then you want to have the authority to decide what's disinformation, information for the uh, internet and, and all the rest of it. And it's like, I'm sure we could probably spend a whole nother hour discussing this. But anyhow, it's it's something that we have to figure out how we can um, live in this society when we've got this uh, official narrative and people have opposition and we don't want to have the opposition to be insults and rock throwing and smashing windows and all the rest of it. The opposition, Barry, the opposition also has a role to play there. I used to watch Question Period until the 1980s. Uh, but with the 1980s, I mean, we're talking about the liberals in opposition. You'll remember the Rat Pack. Oh, very uh, clearly. You know, yes. what, what they did to undermine civilized discussion, I think, has not been appreciated. We've been on a downward slope ever since. And what does that, what is the consequence of that? That means good people don't run for office. That, uh, yeah, that means that good people right. don't, don't even want to bother. I mean, that's why right. would you spend the best years of your life running for parliament to get nothing? And the prime minister, has, as we say, has all the power, has yeah. all the discretion. It goes back to that. You know, mm. civilization comes to a question of discourse, of having a, mm. a fruitful talk, progressive talk on a topic, and listening to each other. I think you have, you have, you know, inevitably you have to go back to history. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little no, bit. No, you're not exaggerating policy, as far as I'm concerned. But, but, you know, I think that good civilized discourse, and we don't do this enough in our country. We don't yeah. do this enough. You've done, you're doing a podcast. I've done a podcast now for four years. We talk about history. It's called Witness to Yesterday. It's my contribution to discourse. Mm-hmm. You know, I bring in experts and we talk about history. I think that there's something to that. I think that there's, yeah. there's something to that. And it's, again, I come back to the question of dignity. If you understand Indigenous realities, in as many dimensions as possible, mm-hmm. then you are a better person. You're right. going to be more sensitive. You may understand a little bit more about what the government of Canada was doing in the, in the process. It develops empathy. It mm-hmm. develops uh, an awareness of an, intel- an intelligence. We need that. We are undernourished in yes. this country. And the example has to come from the leaders, the prime ministers, the premier. I say, we haven't talked about the premiers very much, but <laughs> yeah. this assault, this assault on the historical figures yeah. of Canada has been met with utter silence right. by the premiers, yeah. utter silence. We've had 10 statues destroyed in Canada of John A. Macdonald. I don't recall seeing one prime minister beyond a quick quip on the media, yeah. on, on television, nothing more substantive than that. They are guilty Absolutely. of neglect as much as anybody else. As yeah. much as the you know the, the bums that tore down statues, when the premier says nothing, I think that there's a real problem there. Yeah. We are a history that is orphaned. People are illiterate about their history. And I think that if you want to turn the corner, we're going to have to start with that. Listen, Patrice, I, I won't keep, keep you anymore. I just want to thank you so very much for your Pleasure. willingness to come on and to, to discuss about these extremely important matters of history. And for those of you who are watching, I want to thank you for your time. And some of the discussion you may hear on this program, you may not agree with, and that's okay. Because the yeah. whole purpose <laughs> here is for us to be able to discuss freely And it's okay to disagree. And I want to encourage you to keep in touch. And please press that like button right there. That helps us uh, tremendously. Also, I encourage you to sign up for our newsletter over at firstfreedoms.ca. 
That's firstfreedoms.ca. And until next time, I'm Barry Bussey. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. Firstfreedoms.ca.